Matthew 5. Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7, we have what is popularly known as the Sermon on the Mount. That's right, the Sermon on the Mount. This is, no doubt, the best known and least understood of all of Jesus' sermons. The best known and the least understood. Even people who know very little about the Bible seem to know something about this sermon. Like, who are you to judge me, right? Matthew 7 and verse 1, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Or the golden rule, right? Treat people the same way you want them to treat you, Matthew 7 and verse 12. People know something about this sermon. They just don't know very much. They really don't know how it all fits together. In fact, there there are a number of different ways that people approach this passage of Scripture, this sermon. One commentator identified 12 different ways that people come at it. I've condensed a few of those down for you and would like to review just a few of them with you because I think it's important for us to set this as a groundwork before we launch in. What's the wrong way to approach this sermon and then what is the correct way? One of the incorrect approaches to the Sermon on the Mount is what is known as the salvation approach. The salvation approach. This is the approach that is adopted by liberal Protestant and Catholic theology. Liberal Protestant, liberal Catholic theology. Essentially, what this teaches is that people can attain salvation by living their lives according to the principles set forth in this sermon. If you just live according to the Sermon on the Mount, then your salvation will be assured, is the teaching. Liberal Protestants, Catholics. Of course, the fundamental error that lies behind this is verse 48 of chapter 5, right? It's a great thought. Chapter 5 and verse 48 sort of causes the whole thing to unravel. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, well, if the, the means and mechanism of salvation is to, is to live according to the standards of this sermon, because nobody's perfect, right? So that one doesn't work. In fact, it's the universal testimony of the Word of God that salvation is by grace through faith alone. By grace through faith alone. It is not something that can be attained by human effort, no matter how worthy or noble the endeavor. So the salvation approach just doesn't work. Another approach that's erroneous is called the societal approach. The societal approach. The idea here is that the sermon is a guide for the salvation of society. If people would would just live 
according to the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, society would be so much better off. And they're right. It would be. Indeed, society would be better off if it was conducted according to the principles set forth in this sermon. But this utopian dream kind of strips the sermon out of its context. It lifts it out of the reason it was given. Beyond that, man lacks the ability of self-reform. Isn't that true? There's no spiritual power that resides within us that somehow society could be ordered according to the Sermon on the Mount. The idea of building a society upon the Sermon on the Mount is as useless as the bumper sticker, visualize world peace. Okay? Nice idea. No power. No power. Third, it's what's called the church approach. This one's common. The church approach. This is the idea that the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to instruct the church as to how Jesus would have believers live in this present age. So it was given to instruct the church on how we're supposed to live in this present age. Those who teach this view or hold this view, they teach that the sermon was intended to to guide regenerate people in an unregenerate world. Is to portray how we as Christians are supposed to live. The problem with that is that this sermon was delivered, delivered during the time of the Old Testament, during the time of the Old Covenant. It was preached under the Old Covenant. The church will not even come into existence for several more years. If Jesus is is preaching a sermon as to how the church is supposed to live, years before the church is even brought into existence, it makes it kind of hard for his, his hearers to figure out what he's talking about, don't you think? It sort of defeats the purpose of communication. If I communicate to a crowd and none of them know or could know what I'm talking about. Church approach just doesn't make it. Then we have what's called the kingdom approach. The kingdom approach. This is the idea that the the Sermon on the Mount sets the standard by which people will conduct themselves during millennial kingdom, during Messiah's kingdom. It is the standards by which the believers in the kingdom will conduct themselves. Now, there is something commendable about this idea, and that is that at least it it takes the passage seriously in terms of its Jewishness. There's a definite Jewish audience and nature to this sermon. It's it's unavoidable. For example, chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. The law of the prophets. Talking about the Old Testament. Talking about the Old Testament. Verse 22, chapter 5. 
I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before. And it's probably translated the Supreme Court in your English version. But it's actually Sanhedrin. It's actually Sanhedrin. It is the, it is the Jewish ruling council of Israel. You'll probably see that in a margin note if you've got a study Bible. You're guilty before the Sanhedrin. Verses 23, 24. If you're presenting your offering at the altar, remember that your brother has something against you. We don't have an altar and we don't bring offerings. So the sacrificial system is still in play here. The Sanhedrin is still the ultimate ruling body. The the law and the prophets, that is the Old Testament, is still the book the people of God at the time this sermon is preached. So it, it is a Jewish, there's a very Jewish flavor to all of this. So that's commendable on the part of those who see this as a, king, a kingdom approach. But, but their interpretation has, I believe, a fatal flaw. A fatal flaw, why that, that can't be the correct approach to that. And, and what it is is it doesn't adequately account for things that are incongruous with the kingdom. Things that are out of place with the time of Messiah's reign. For example, persecution. Look at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 5. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. During Messiah's kingdom, there won't be any persecution. Chapter 6, verse 10. Jesus is teaching them to to pray, and he says, pray to the Father that his kingdom will come. Well, if you're already in the kingdom, that doesn't make much sense to pray that the kingdom will come. So I don't think the kingdom approach quite gets it either. That takes me to what we're calling the interim approach. I think this is the right one. The interim approach. This approach interprets the sermon as given to the nation in preparation to receive the kingdom. It is preached to the nation in preparation for the coming kingdom. It's very clear from the context that the kingdom of God is is being offered to the nation. Chapter 4, verse 17, right? From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same message that John the Baptist was preaching. As Jesus is preaching this message... He's gathering disciples to himself. Along with the disciples that are being gathered to him, and there's a a growing crowd of what I call the curious. Crowds of the curious. It's in this context that Jesus is setting forth a description of what are the good fruit that John the Baptist had been calling for. Right? You remember chapter 3? Verse 8, when John's preaching, he says, Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
He says, if you don't bear fruit, the tree will be cut down and thrown into the fire. By the way, chapter 7, verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Same, same idea. What does a heart of someone who is ready for Messiah's kingdom look like? Since the kingdom of heaven is at hand, how should the nation prepare to receive it? That's the background behind this sermon. How do they become fit for the king? How do they become fit for the king? Now what that means is, and I hope this doesn't totally rock your world, but this sermon is not written to you. Or me. The sermon is not written, is not addressed to you or I. That shouldn't bother you too much, by the way, because none of the scripture is written to you. Not directly, anyway. It's only by application. But it is scripture. It is Scripture, and as such, it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, right? 2 Timothy 3.16. So we're not saying that this sermon doesn't have tremendous value. It does. It's just not intended in first interpretation for you or me. So as we go through the sermon together, and we will go through it together, there is a lot we can learn. There's a lot that we can and we must apply to our own lives as we await the return of Christ. That will be our approach. We will seek to understand it in its original historical context. How did those who first hear it understand it? How did Jesus intend it? And then once we have a clear interpretation, we will then make application to our lives living 20 centuries later. Does that make sense? It's our approach. So let's take an outline. Let's take a look just at an outline of how this sermon is put together. It begins in verses 1 and 2, chapter 5, with the setting. So we have the setting of the sermon. Now, the setting of the sermon here, according to tradition, is a level place on a mountain near Capernaum. That's where it occurred. Jesus, assuming the posture of a a rabbi, it says in in verse 1, he sat down. He began to instruct his disciples. Luke chapter 6 and verse 17, a parallel passage, he says that the audience for this sermon is comprised of three groups of people. There are the 12 apostles. There is a larger group called the disciples or the followers of Jesus. And then there are the throng of people called here the crowds or the multitudes. So as Jesus is teaching, there are, as it were, three groups in the audience. And we'll need to be careful as we work through it to figure out who he's talking to. 
verses 3 through 16 of the sermon are calling it the subjects of the kingdom. So we have the setting for the sermon. We now have the subjects of the kingdom. This section, verses 3 through 16, chapter 5, spells out the character and blessings of those who will inherit the kingdom. And it's described for us from eight different perspectives. Each one, there's a a blessing pronounced upon them. We call this the Beatitudes, right? The Beatitudes. The subjects of the kingdom. Who are they? Third, we have the spiritual requirements of the kingdom. This is the longest section of the sermon. It begins in verse 17, chapter 5. It runs all the way to verse 12 of chapter 7. So this is the main body of the sermon. This section of the sermon is given for one primary reason, and that is conviction. Conviction. Jesus is addressing his disciples, verse 1, chapter 5, but he is also speaking through them to the multitudes that have been attracted to him because of his extensive healing ministry. You remember verse 25 of chapter 4. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Why are they following him? Well, there's a multitude of reasons, of course, but, but certainly one of the major reasons they're following him is because he is healing every single person. We said last time he, he effectively banished disease from Galilee. So there's large throngs of what I call the curious that are following him, and Jesus is going to speak to them. Both John the Baptist and Jesus have been declaring that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The question in people's mind would naturally be, am I eligible to enter? If the kingdom is here, am I eligible to enter? Am I going to be a citizen of the kingdom? Am I going to be able to go in? Said this way, am I righteous enough to enter into Messiah's kingdom? Now, the only righteousness that that they know is the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. They They are the righteous people, the righteous men of that society. They are the model of what it means to be a righteous man. And so the people are taking their standard from them. So in a very plain, a very clear, a very compelling way, Jesus is going to cut through all the cultural, religious baggage, and he is going to unveil what God's standards truly are. He's going to pierce beyond the letter of the law to the underlying spirit, and in the process, he's going to to speak to those who are following him and the curious and challenge them to compare themselves to God's true standard. Not the Pharisees, but the Word of God. Now, just from a literary point of view, we have in chapter 5, verse 17, and then chapter 7 and verse 12, what's called an inclusio. That's a big word. What does it mean? 
It means these are like bookends. These two verses are, are bookends either side of this large section of the sermon. Verse 17, do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. Chapter 7, verse 12, in everything, therefore, treat the people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Okay, so he begins with talking about the law and the prophets. He ends by talking about the law and the prophets. That are the book, those are the bookends that put the frame around this major section of his sermon. Now, this big section can, can be subdivided. It can be subdivided, A and a B. By the way, those of you who think I preach long, this, this, um, I'm going to read this sermon to you, by the way, before we go home soon. It only takes about 16 minutes. This is not the entire sermon. This is not the entire sermon. This is an excerpt from the sermon. Anyway, I just thought I'd tell you that. Here we go. There's an A and a B part. The A part of the sermon begins in verse 17, chapter 5, runs through the end of chapter 5, verse 48, and it's simply this, what true righteousness is. What true righteousness is. Or said more grammatically correct, I suppose, what is true righteousness? But I like Yoda speak, what true righteousness is. His methodology here is to draw a comparison between the popular notions of righteousness embodied in the Pharisaical traditions with the righteousness that both individuals and the nation must embrace in preparation for Messiah's kingdom. Therefore, we see the expression repeatedly, pick it up in verse 21, chapter 5, and it appears six times. Verse 21 is one of them. You'll find the others. You have heard that the ancients were told, verse 22, but I say to you, you will see that formula used six times. And what, when you read it, what you need to visualize are, is a group of Pharisees sort of standing off to the side. There are the 12 disciples. There's a larger crowd of disciples. There's the curious. There's the Pharisees kind of hanging off to the side because this is a big religious event, and they want to monitor it. So you need to see Jesus saying, You have heard that it was said, but I say. Okay, and he points to the Pharisees when he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say. So he is making that contrast. Establishing what is true righteousness. The B part, picking up in chapter 6 and verse 1, what is true righteousness, what true righteousness does. What is it? What does it do? Chapter 6, verse 1, runs all the way through chapter 7, verse 12. Here Jesus rejects the Pharisaical practices with regard to charity, prayer, fasting, riches, worry, and judgment. Then like all good sermons, he issues a, a summons, a call to respond. Verse 13 to 27, the summons to the kingdom. The summons to the kingdom. He does it through a, a series of three appeals. He contrasts two different ways, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, two fruits, chapter 7, verses 15 to 23, and two foundations, chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. 
sermon finishes with a statement about the superiority of Jesus' authority. Chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. He has demonstrated the inadequacies of the Pharisaical system. (coughs) Excuse me. Everything these people had ever known was insufficient. They are now overwhelmed with that reality. But more than that, they are amazed, it says, not just with what he said, but verse 29, with the way he said it. It was his kingly authority. His kingly authority. He spoke in a way that was unlike any other man. In a way unlike any other man. All right. Let's listen to it. Let's listen to this sermon. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You or the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house." Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished." Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be, yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. 
Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room Close your door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. Our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, Anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? 
Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed themselves like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow was thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. Do not worry and saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who seek him? In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone 
who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Wow. In the reading that I have been doing in preparation for this series on the Sermon on the Mount, a question has come up repeatedly, and that is, can anyone possibly live according to these standards? I have a quote for you here that I'd like to close with. Is the Sermon on the Mount livable? Mr. Kearney says. His answer, what a tragedy, the tragedy would be to never try to answer this question. Is it livable? The tragedy would be to never try and find out. As we go through the next weeks and weeks together, I don't know how many weeks. It's a long sermon. But as we go through it, I I just pray that the grace of God would, would really apply one or more portions of this sermon to your heart. That you would... You would come in contact with the holy in a way perhaps that you haven't in a very long time. May God abundantly bless you, my beloved. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. How enriched we are by having it and and how humbled and challenged by thinking about it. May your Holy Spirit do something powerful in our midst in these next months. As we begin to explore this sermon, as we begin to make application, O Lord, may your Spirit make good and true application to every one of our hearts. May you transform us because we come face to face with the holiness of God. Our Father, we readily confess that we cannot do these things in our own strength and power, but we are dependent upon your Holy Spirit to work. O Lord, may you be pleased to pour forth your Spirit upon us in abundance. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If something we have said this morning piques your interest, Perhaps a section of this sermon that you would like to dialogue on a little bit, particularly as it concerns your eternal soul. As people are filing out, I'll be down front here, and I would love for that opportunity to do that. God bless you. You're dismissed.